turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 5 this morning for this part of our worship where we look at God's Word, Luke chapter 5. We will be noticing, appreciate that good song, Jesus the Great Physician, Jesus the Great Physician, Luke chapter 5 verses 27 through 32. You'll notice also that this same episode in the life of Jesus is recorded in Matthew chapter 9, 9 through 13, and Mark chapter 2, uh, 13 through 17. We'll primarily focus on Luke's account uh, for our setting this morning. Jesus, the great physician. This is a very important lesson. First, because it is an episode in the life of the man who lived on earth, the greatest man who ever lived. The greatest person who's ever been on our tongue. The sweetest name that was ever sung. Uh, Jesus, blessed Jesus. This is an episode in his life. And it's, it's worth our, our time. It's worth us repeating this and going back and looking at it again and again. But this particular episode helps us focus on what we need to focus on, of course. And that is our soul. Our soul. Jesus once said, Matthew 16, 26, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We must have that strong focus. As followers of our Lord, we must focus on the soul. And so let's get started. We'll have about five sections in our lesson this morning and then we'll be through. Jesus had just healed a man. He was in Capernaum. He was in the area of Galilee, north of Judea, close to the Sea of Galilee. He just healed a man in a house. And he's walking close to the seashore and he saw a man by the name of Matthew Levi, who was a tax collector. And he was sitting at his booth doing his business. And he looked to Matthew and he said, follow me. And Matthew got right up and followed him. Let's look at this closely uh, together. First, let's notice the meeting of Jesus and Matthew. He does say, follow me. But notice here in Luke's account, the first thing that Matthew does, his response, is he forsook all. Verse 27 and 28, Luke 5. Matthew forsook all. This is very important. Before we can follow Jesus, we must forsake everything that would uh, be in our way. He forsook all. Of course... This doesn't mean that Matthew became irresponsible toward his wife and children if he had a family at that time. But it does mean he made a, a determination. He made a resolution that Jesus is worth any sacrifice that he gives toward following him. It means that he forsook every obstacle he forsook every barrier that would possibly be in his way as he sought to fully serve Jesus with his entire being and heart. And we read about other people in the Bible that made similar commitments to our God. Hebrews 11 verse 8, for example, talks about the faith of Abraham uh, in the Old Testament. By faith Abraham, when he was called out, Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, by faith Abraham, when he was called out to go into a place, uh, later on that he would receive for inheritance, inheritance. But when he was called out to go into a place, uh, he obeyed, not knowing whether he went. What tremendous faith was shown by Abraham. When you go back to the end of Genesis uh, 11, the last couple of verses of Genesis 11, you find out 
Abraham was from a place called Ur, Ur of the Chaldees, a little city called Ur, not really a little city, because uh, researchers have done excavations there over the years, and they find out that little old Ur was actually a, a very developed, very advanced city for those days. It had a, a very elaborate water system there where households were able to have water. had an incredible uh, education system. Many school buildings were found there and many uh, archives of uh, great learning uh, was found, has been found there in Ur of the Chaldees. Big houses, big uh, business buildings have been uh, uh, uncovered there in Ur of the Chaldees. So when Abraham was called to leave his place, he was forsaking some great riches. He was forsaking a very convenient place in which he was living to go to a place where, the, where he didn't know where he was going at first and to dwell in tents here and there, live like nomads. Here's a man who forsook all. In the same chapter, Hebrews 11, 23 to 26, we read about Moses and how Moses forsook Egypt in fact, it says there that Moses, um, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Right there in Hebrews 11. It goes on to say that, that Moses accounted the reproach of Christ of greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. Again, notice, Moses forsook this to follow God. We read here, if you want to follow along with me in Philippians chapter 3, Read about Paul's commitment to Christ uh, that he makes. And this is really impressive. So we just let the words speak for themselves. Hebrews, uh, um, Hebrews, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Notice this with me. Philippians 3, thinking about folks who forsook all to leave, to leave uh, their place and follow Christ. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. Notice what Paul says. He says, but whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So the first thing that Matthew does in response is he forsakes everything. He forsakes. And then he follows him. He follows him. The language here means that he started following Christ and he just continued to follow Christ from that point on. It must have been that Matthew had heard about the power of Jesus, that he had heard about his teachings, that he, he at least had gained some respect for Jesus before this occasion for him just to listen to Jesus and then get right up right away and start following him. But certainly it reminds us of 1 Peter 2.21 where Peter says... Uh, that Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Whatever Jesus uh, would do, uh, whatever Jesus would think, uh, whatever Jesus would be involved in, the people that Jesus would spend time with, on and on, we walk in the steps of Jesus. As 1 John 2 verse 6 says, we are to walk even as he walked. Notice the response of Matthew in the meeting of Jesus. First he forsook all. And then he followed him. And then the third thing he did, he created this feast, this, this supper time, where he could invite his friends to be able to hear Jesus as well. He invited Jesus. He invited his friends there. 
And it was a great thing that Matthew did. He wanted other people to have the same opportunity to hear Jesus that he had been uh, involved in. Jesus has need of what we have. Jesus had need of Matthew's house. Jesus had just come from a house in Capernaum where, where the house was so full of people listening to him they had to bring a man in through the roof. Jesus needed, he needed Matthew's house to be able to teach. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we read how Jesus came to Peter and Peter's boat was out there on the water and, and he asked Peter to put his boat out just a little bit further so he could turn around and teach the multitude on the seashore. He, had, he, he, needed, he needed Peter's boat to teach. So he needs what we have in order to do what he needs to do. He needs our phones. He needs our computers. He needs our stamps. He needs our cards. He needs our time. He needs our energy. He needs our houses. He needs our church buildings. He needs what we have in order to be able to teach. So notice the meeting of Matthew and in Jesus. The second thing I want us to see is this gathering at Matthew's house. He creates this feast, and, and uh, let's just notice that for a second. Uh, this gathering at Matthew's house. The, the people there are interesting. Matthew invites the people he knows, which are really low-down people. They're, they're publicans, they're sinners. The tax collectors did not have the greatest reputation in Jesus' day because it was so easy to abuse the system. And many of them would abuse the system and they would keep money for themselves or they would charge a higher taxes than what they had to charge just because they had the power uh, to do it. And so they didn't have the greatest reputation. Matthew invited people he knew. Maybe the people who came were people who, that, those are the only kind of people that would hang around him right, right at that moment. But nonetheless, there were tax collectors and sinners uh, there. But also, entering uh, the feast area that day were the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Now, they considered themselves at the very top of the behavior uh, monitor. They were at the very top of the behavior barometer. They, they considered themselves as being the pierced of the pure. They were coming in just to see what Jesus was, was doing on this occasion. So it's quite a mixture here of people. You've got publicans and sinners, and you've got these Pharisees that are there. And it, it tends to be a very interesting uh, time. So you see the people gathered here. But you also see the complaint. You see the complaint. The Pharisees make a complaint. They speak to Jesus' disciples and say, why does your teacher eat and associate with these sinners and publicans? That's why they were there. They were there to criticize. They were there to complain. Why does your teacher eat with these publicans and sinners? This was a common criticism of Jesus. Now note, it did not cause him to stop what he was doing. Never. Never. But if you turn over to Luke 15, 1 and 2, you see that there... They're doing the same thing. Jesus is associating eating with, with sinners. And it caused Jesus to give those three famous parables there in Luke 15. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost boy. But Jesus was trying to penetrate the hearts of these critics by getting them to understand the importance of the soul 
and the tragedy of the soul being lost. That's what he was aiming at there at Luke 15, and that's what he's aiming at here with this um, gathering at, at Matthew's house. Okay. And then, so notice this gathering here. Notice the people that are there. Notice the complaint that is made. And then notice the statement that Jesus makes. Now this is like, to me, this is like a shot uh, heard around the world. It ought to be, it ought to be vibrating everywhere. Okay. Jesus says, in response to this complaint, he says, those that are well, those that are whole do not, do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's looking to these Pharisees and he's saying, you don't even realize that you are sick. You don't even realize that you have a need of the Savior. But these publicans and sinners here, they do realize that they are spiritually sick. They do realize their need for a Savior. Now, for, for some who would just casually observe you know, the Pharisees on one side and then these publicans and sinners on the other they would say, well, the Pharisees are much further ahead in life than these other guys. But not really. Not really. Because what puts us in a good situation with the Lord is, first, our ability to know that we are, with our sins, we are spiritually sick. And we have a desperate need of the Lord. And so we see here the meeting of Matthew and Jesus. We also see here the... The gathering here at Matthew's house. I want us to move on now and see the situation. When we talk about Jesus and the great physician, he, he, he is the, the doctor of the soul. I want us to understand the, the situation as it is. First, there is a spiritual disease in the world. And of course that is sin. You see that from Jesus' statement that's heard around the world. Those that are whole do not need a physician, but those who are sick. Next verse. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a spiritual disease. It is sin. Sin is the worst thing that has ever been on this earth. And it is all over the world. Okay, That's part of the situation. The second part of the situation is that there are patients in need of a doctor. And those patients, those who are sick, that's everybody. That's, that's me, that's you, that's everybody walking. Everybody walking around, taking in air, needs, they are spiritually sick. They need the physician. Romans 3, 9 and 10 says, of course, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 and 23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then there is the great physician himself. There's only one doctor, there's only one physician who can help us with this spiritual disease that is everywhere. And of course, that's Jesus. He's the only one who is qualified to be this physician. If you'll notice here in Luke 5, Jesus had just healed this man who was a paralytic. And they had brought him down through the tiles of the roof and he had uh, declared him uh, well. In fact, he says... And you can see this from Matthew's account and Mark's account too. But he says, so that the whole world will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say unto you, say to this man, take up your bed and walk. And he did immediately. Okay. 
And the reaction to this is, is quite telling. If you look at Luke 5 and 26, it says, And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. You see, Jesus is the only one. The fact that Jesus can deal when He was on earth, He could deal with the effects of sin, which is sickness and death. That shows that He can deal with the source of our sin as well. Jesus is eminently qualified to be the great physician. We know that by His perfect life, He's qualified. Hebrews 4, 15, as you know, says, uh, We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but we have one who is tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Jesus lived the perfect life, and He was able to offer the perfect sacrifice. He's just qualified again and again through His death, through His burial, through His resurrection, through His ascension upon high, through His marvelous teachings, through His marvelous works. The very fact that He is the Son of God, He is... Qualified. He's the only one qualified to be the great physician. So first, there is a spiritual disease all over the world. We are the patients that need the doctor, and Jesus is the great uh, physician. And there is a medical book, in a sense. If you look at 1 Timothy 6 and verse 3, the New Testament is referred to as sound words, which are according to godly, godliness. Sound words. Sound means healthy. Whenever you read the word sound in your Bible, especially the New Testament, it means healthy words. These are the words that Jesus uses to bring healing, healing to our souls. And then the situation is this. We've got to go to the, do- to the doctor. Okay. So I just want to spell out the situation. There's a spiritual disease. We're all patients. There is the great physician. There is the gospel. There is his book. There's his doctrine. There's his sound words. And we all must go to him healing. What I want to do now next is show some comparisons between physical sickness and spiritual sickness just for a minute or two. Some comparisons between physical sickness and spiritual uh, sickness and then the working of that out uh, in our lives. Oftentimes in physical sickness we obtain Sicknesses through genetics, through, through maybe through our parents. It's, it's in our family. Some people come into the world with a disposition toward diabetes or disposition toward high blood pressure or skin disorders. But it's not that way with sin. This is a difference between physical sickness and spiritual sickness. It's different when it comes to sin. You see, sin cannot be inherited. Sin is learned. Ezekiel 18 verse 20 makes this pretty clear. Uh, the soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. It just simply means that we're all accountable for our sins. We're all responsible for God, before God uh, for our sins. Okay. Sin is not something we get in, in, you know, instinctively from our parents. It is something that we learn. We, we learn to transgress. We, we learn to lie. We learn to cheat. Uh, we learn to be selfish. We learn to manipulate. We learn these things. A lot of that learning comes from other people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 
33 says that evil companionships corrupt good morals. But sin is something that we learn to do as we're on this earth. Now, here's a similarity. It's really two similarities in one. Sin is both invasive and progressive, but that's how physical sickness is as well. When we go to a a regular doctor, he will listen to us. He will, you know, prod around on our bodies, maybe take blood tests, maybe take x-ray. But he wants to know what's going on inside our bodies so he can make a proper diagnosis. Because oftentimes physical sickness is invasive. It's within us. That's the way sin is. But physical sickness can be also progressive. Okay. Oftentimes, if we don't take care of a physical sickness, then it's going to grow and get worse. It's progressive. And that's the way sin is as well. Let's listen to James talk about both of these ideas in James 1, 13 through 15. Okay. Notice how James in James chapter 1, 13 through 15 will talk about sin being invasive, but also progressive. So in James 1, beginning in verse 13, if you want to notice it there, uh, notice it in your Bibles, it begins by saying, Let no man say when he is tempted that he has been tempted by God. For God doesn't tempt anyone, and he's not tempted, tempted by evil. But then James says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away with his own lust. Okay, notice that lust means desires. He's drawn away with his own desires. That's within us. That's within our hearts and our minds. That's where sin begins. So every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust. And then lust, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. And then sin, when it's finished with us, it brings forth death. But notice how that progresses along. No drunk who is... uh, You you may find that you you could go to a major city and probably find a drunk... He doesn't smell good. He's on the sidewalk or he's laying on a bench. And he, he, he looks terrible. No drunk ever intended to live life that way. He never intended for life to be lived this way. That drunk, whoever he is, was once a little boy. He was once a little boy. He enjoyed crickets. He enjoyed fishing. He enjoyed playing ball. He enjoyed exploring the world. He was the pride of his mother's heart. Okay. But somewhere along the way, somebody said, have a drink. And he did. And then that led him down this dark path, and then he finds himself being there. You see, sin is both invasive, it gets inside of us, and it grows, and it takes us to places where we would never intend to be. Now, Let's notice another comparison. Physically speaking, our bodies are full of death. may not be something you want to hear, but it's true. Okay. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Our outward man is perishing day by day, day by day. Okay. That's good news. That's good news. Because the Lord has a better place waiting on us. Okay. Well, let's think about this in comparison. We are headed toward death. 
unless Jesus comes first, we're headed toward death. But most of the time that we're headed for death, we feel pretty good. Most days of our lives, we feel pretty good. We're, we're carrying on, we're laughing, we're able to take in air, we're able to, to eat and to breathe and move about and, and create a living and do things that we enjoy doing. Most of our lives, most of our time is spent feeling pretty good. Okay. But at the same time, going on within us is a process leading to death. Okay. It's, it's pretty deceptive because most of the time we feel pretty good. It, uh, it, it helps the devil trick us into thinking that we're always going to live. But we're not going to live. Not, not a single one of us is going to be on this earth for very, very long. Okay. In the same way, spiritual, spiritual disease exists within us, but oftentimes people don't pay much attention to that because things are going pretty good in life. They're going pretty good. They feel pretty good. They look at themselves and say, well, I don't really do all that much harm. You know, I, I don't, I'm not a drunk. I feel pretty good about myself. I get along with people. I have a pretty decent rep reputation. But that, again, can be very deceptive. Let's take an example. Acts, Acts uh, 23, verse 1, the, the Apostle Paul himself. Acts 23, 23, verse 1. Paul is having to stand before the Jewish council. And he said, Brothers, I have lived in my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's what he said. Paul says, I have lived in all good conscience before God up to this day. Let's think about that. What is it that Paul had done before he became a Christian? Well, he hunted down Christians. He tortured Christians. He led both men and women who were Christians to, to jail. He was in charge of the death of Christians. And all along, he felt good about it. He felt, that's, he felt like that was exactly what he needed to be doing. He didn't feel one twinge of regret about it. He was in good conscience toward doing that. But all the while, he was as lost as a person could possibly be. And to finally he found the gospel of Jesus. In Acts 26, verse 9, Paul says, at one time, he was totally convinced that he ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But he learned better. But all the while that he was doing those things in opposition to Jesus of Nazareth, he felt just fine about it. He felt good. He went on eating and carrying on and spending time with his family. It didn't bother him one little bit that he was opposing Jesus because he didn't know. But that, did, that lack of knowledge was not bringing him salvation. Not until he listened to Ananias. Ananias told him, get up, get himself uh, baptized, wash away his sins, Acts twenty two sixteen, and call on the name of the Lord in that manner. Not till then could he claim salvation uh, from his sins. One other uh, comparison, and we'll move on. This is kind of silly, but it's not. 
because it deals with the soul. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that uh, someone goes to the doctor? The doctor says, uh, I, "I've looked, and here's what you need. Here, here's the treatment you need." And um, the patient, in response, says, "Doc, I see on your wall here. I see all your qualifications. You've been to school, and you you've been rewarded for." for this research and that research, and I really believe that you are qualified in what you are saying. Okay. Uh, but Doc, instead of taking this treatment that you are offering me, I'm just going to go home and I'm going to meditate upon you, and I'm going to trust in you that, um, that my ills will go away. I'm not going to do this treatment. I'm not going to go by the drugstore. I'm not going to get up on this table and let you work on me. I'm just going to trust in your name. Because I know you're qualified to be who you say you are. What's going to happen to that person, that patient, who goes and just meditation trusts and doesn't take the treatment? Well, of course, of course he's not going to get any better. But we do this with the Lord Jesus, don't we? We do this. The great physician of the soul. He himself predicted this. I I believe Jesus predicted this scenario that is across our religious land today that people simply say, trust and pray to Jesus and you'll be okay. I think Jesus was almost predicting this because he says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Of course, Jesus is qualified to be the physician, but he also said before he left this earth, listen to him closely in Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Of course, belief comes first because we are inspired by who he is. But he himself says we must obey the Lord. So when we take the treatment the treatment that we take from the great physician is in obedience to the gospel. It is of repenting uh, of our sins and turning uh, to him. Let's move on now to the final part, and that is the mission that Jesus leaves us. In Matthew's account, Matthew nine thirteen, this is another part of Jesus' response to this criticism. This criticism the Pharisees brought in by saying, Why does your teacher eat with sinners and publicans? Notice in Matthew 9 and verse 13 what Jesus says. He says, I want you to go learn what this means. Here's some homework for you. I want you to go learn what this means. And then he gives them what he wants to learn. He quotes from the Old Testament. He says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He said, go learn what that means. And of course, he's saying that to us as well. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. What is he saying? He's basically saying, you ought to be doing the same thing I'm doing. If you had a love for people, a love for people who are lost and wanting them to be saved, you also, instead of criticizing this, you also would be out here with the publicans and sinners if you truly knew the Lord, the Lord in his heart. That's what he's saying. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. It's not that the Lord is disdaining the elements of the law 
that tells us to do this and that, to have this structure and this in place and that in place. He's not disdaining that, but he is saying that all that is of no account if we don't have love for other people in our hearts. He is saying that. We listen to him in Matthew 22, 37-39. He says, On these two things hangs the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't have that, then all of your doings, and all of your beings, and all your this and that, and your structures, and, and cleaning this up, and, and doing this and that, all that is absolutely in vain. Listen to Paul. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1, notice what he says about love once again. He says, I speak, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to be able to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and, I, and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is the mission that He leaves with us. He left it with Matthew and the other apostles. He left it with the disciples. Go learn what this means. I will have mercy. This is the Lord speaking to us. He says, here's what I want from you. I want mercy from you. I want the same compassion that I have for you to be in your heart toward other people. And so we see here the great physician. We see his focus on souls. We see here how great he really is. And we see here that we are wasting time and precious life if we're not following Him with our every step and with all of our hearts. We offer to you this morning the Lord's invitation. Will you come right now as we stand, as we sing?